Well, hey, Harvest, thank you for tuning in. If you've been with us for the last few months at this point, I normally say take your Bibles and turn to the book of Philippians. We've been there kind of throughout the entire spring and summer going through the book of Philippians verse by verse. But last week we finished that study. And our goal in that study, which we entitled Joy for Today, was to, in this season of disruption, in this unusual season, give you some very practical teaching on how to keep or restore your joy uh, in the Lord in this season. And some of you remember Ryan closed uh, this study last week looking at the issue of contentment. What causes discontentment? What are some of the biblical truths we can focus on um, to help us be a more content people? And the week before, Cal was dealing with anxiety and, and what causes anxiety and how we can cast our anxiety uh, on Jesus Christ. And so this has been the nature of where we've been the last few months. And uh, as we finish Philippians, some of you are like, well, where are we going? Well, let me, let me kind of explain that. This fall, we are going to be headed back into the Gospels. And we are going to be doing a study on the life of Jesus Christ chronologically, jumping from Gospel to Gospel, but moving through his life in a chronological um, kind of format up until probably Easter. It'll take us all the way through uh, this fall and this winter. But over the course of this study, on occasion, we might take a week or two and we're going to jump out of this study to look at some things that are impacting us in our culture. And some of you would be like, well, well, why if we're looking at Jesus, if our focus is on Jesus, would we take our eyes off of Jesus to look at cultural issues? Well, there, there's some things going on in our culture um, that are important. But let me, let me explain this to you um, biblically. It says in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 12, it says, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And what I'd like you to note in that verse, there's this phrase, the spirit of the world. That's a small s, and it is contrasted with the spirit that we have received from God, big S, the Holy Spirit. There is a contrast, there is a struggle between what our world grasps onto versus what the Spirit of the Lord would have us believe. It's interesting in Collins' dictionary, it defines the spirit of the age or the spirit of the times. It's the set of ideas, beliefs, and aims that is typical of a people in a particular period of history. And I would argue that today in our society, in this period of history, there are some troubling and disturbing trends in the way that people are believing in the way that they are thinking. First Corinthians 1.20 says it this way. It says, who is the one that is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? It's interesting the period of history that we're living in is beginning to sound very familiar. If I were to take you to the book of 2 Timothy 3, where Paul instructs his protege, Timothy, it says in 2 Timothy 3, 2, describing what the world is going to look like right before the return of Christ, it says this, but understand this, in the last days will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, br brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Some of that sound familiar to what we're seeing 
in our culture, on our news. In Matthew 24, verse 11, as Jesus is describing what the world will look like before his return, he says this, lawlessness will be increased and the love of many will grow cold. And when we see our culture looking like these descriptions, we're reminded that as the church enters the last day, there is a repeated call to the church to stand firm. Actually, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when Jesus speaks in the Olivet Discourse about the return of his, his coming return, in each of those passages, in Matthew 24, it says, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. In Mark, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. In Luke, but the one who endures will by his endurance gain his life. In the book of Revelation, speaking about the return of Christ, there are letters to seven churches and to every church there is given this instruction to the one who overcomes, to the one who overcomes, to the one who overcomes. So the call to the church is in the face of the spirit of the age, in the face of bad thinking, we are to endure, we are to stand firm, we are to overcome. Well, well what are we to stand firm against? Well, what are we to overcome? Well, Romans 12 says that we're not to be conformed to this world. So to not be conformed, we have to understand some of the values that our culture is embracing. That's a, a worthy thing for us as followers of Jesus Christ to look at. It's interesting. In the um, fall of 2015, two men, Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukanoff, wrote an article for the Atlantic magazine, and it was entitled The Coddling of the American Mind. And, and a couple of years later, by the time 2018 came around, this book or this article had now blossomed into a book that made the New York Times bestseller. It had the same name, The Coddling of the American Mind, but it had this as a tag, how good intentions and bad ideas are setting up a generation for failure. And, and in this book, uh, the authors, Greg and Jonathan, they argue that our culture has embraced three great untruths that are reshaping our society. Now, now note they said great untruths. And they uh, argue that to be defined as a great untruth, uh, that untruth has to hit three different criteria. First of all, it has to be against the consensus of ancient wisdom. These men weren't Christian writers. They write from a secular perspective. But they say this truth that our culture embraces has to be against the history of ancient wisdom. Secondly, it has to go against what modern psychology would teach us. And thirdly, to be a great untruth, not only does it have to go against ancient wisdom or current psychological thought, but it has to be doing great harm to the people that embrace it. Those are the hurdles that would need to uh, be involved in this untruth for it to be defined as a great untruth. Now, now remember what, what we're going to talk about this book. It was written in 2018. This is pre-COVID. This is pre-riots. This is pre-protests. And, and my goal this morning is simple. I, I just want to take a couple minutes to look at the three great untruths that they identify that our culture has embraced from a secular viewpoint. To, to look at how those things are impacting the way not only our culture is thinking, but how they are invading the way the church thinks. And then thirdly, to compare those untruths to the ancient truth, God's word, and see how they intersect with the gospel. The big question I would have this morning is this, is the world or the word influencing your thinking? Is the world or the word influencing your thinking? So, so here are the three great untruths that were 
identified in this book, The Coddling of the, Mer- uh, of the American Mind. Here's number one. What doesn't kill you makes you weaker. What, what doesn't kill you makes you weaker. It's the untruth of fragility. And the authors are arguing that safety in our culture and in our society has become a sacred value. And the idea that um, our primary motivation is to make sure that everyone is safe, that everyone um, doesn't experience pain, to protect everyone's feelings, to be very, very careful to walk on eggshells so that nobody is hurt, um, is actually doing harm in our culture. And I, and I know some of you are thinking, well, this idea that uh, to avoid pain, to, to avoid causing someone else pain, that sounds like a really good virtue. That sounds like something we should be embracing. And I would agree with you. To a point, the problem and where this becomes dangerous is when we um, take our children or ourselves and the principle of pain avoidance becomes primary. Here's the truth, that life is full of failures, disappointments, rejections, and stress. They're unavoidable parts of life. And the concern is that if we are shielding ourselves or our kids from any form of disappointment, failure, or, or pain, we're actually leaving them without the ability to deal with these things in their adult lives. We're creating a generation of fragile people. We are creating a nation of, fag- of fragile people. Let me explain it by illustration. Um, I've been told, I wouldn't know this firsthand, but I've been told that if you go to a gym, if you want to build your muscles... One of the things that you do is you lift weights. There's resistance against your muscles. So as you try to expand your muscles, what you do is you lift weights, you pump iron, you push yourself against resistance. It makes your muscles stronger. The opposite is also true. If there's never any resistance, um, your muscles will grow weaker. They will actually atrophy. Uh, My wife, uh, last December, she went through knee replacement surgery, and she had the surgery in the morning, and by that afternoon, they had her walking the halls uh, of the hospital. The next morning, they had her doing steps, and then they sent her home, and the following day, she was at um, rehab already. And, and, And why so fast and why so quickly? Well, doctors have learned that the quicker they can get a patient back on their feet, the better the knee recovers from the surgery. The problem with that is it's painful. And, and so what if I, as her husband and kind of her coach through this, was like, well, Kristen, the last thing I want to do is see you in pain. I, th- I think we should avoid any type of physical therapy. I think you should just lay in bed and uh, avoid pain at any cost. Well, the result of that would be that her knee would never strengthen. The muscles would actually begin to a- atrophy and her knee would get worse rather than better. And, and the authors of this book are arguing that by protecting our kids to the point where our culture has taken this, we might be doing them more harm than good. There's a old saying that says, prepare the child for the road, not the road for the child, because inevitably life is going to include painful interactions. It's interesting, Greg is a constitutional lawyer. Jonathan is a, a social psychologist. And as they've looked at American campuses, they're seeing that college students are ill-equipped to deal with life issues of pain, disappointment, failure, competition, because as they have gone through their younger years, they've, they've grown up in a, in, a, in a shielded environment that hasn't exposed them to these things. I remember when I was growing up as a kid, just as a minor example, um, I was put on sport teams, on, on little league teams, and I played on some horrible teams. I think we went two or three years never winning. Um, you, you learn a lot about failure and how to deal with disappointment and failure through that process. But that doesn't happen today. 
If, if your kid's an ASO, uh, we don't keep score anymore. There's no winners. There's no losers. Everybody gets ice cream with sprinkles. That's how our society has overreacted. And their concern is that in that overreaction, we aren't preparing our youth for real life. This safetyism, this fragility, this protect at any cost, make sure that nobody is injured. It has tentacles. We become oversensitive. We become easily offended. And, and the fear that everyone is so fragile that we have to think twice before anything that we say for fear of facing the charge of being insensitive, aggressive, or maybe worse. You, you can't correct bad logic. You can't um, correct poor performance in the workplace without being viewed as hurtful or aggressive or insensitive. The authors argue that this increased concern for fragility has actually led to increased depression and anxiety on college campuses. And they argue that by embracing this culture of safetyism, we've interfered with people's social, emotional, and intellectual development. We become a nation of fragile people. And I'm telling you, this, is, this, this fragility has seeped into the church. People are easily offended. Pastors pull punches. We're, we're, we're scared to say something that will create an offense. Preachers focus on the blessings of God rather than the wrath of God. And as this happens, my, my fear is this, as it relates to the gospel, that we actually become um, disenchanted with the idea of a God who would allow us to go through difficult seasons to accomplish his purposes because we're immersed in the sea of a society that says nobody should suffer or feel pain. The American church has become increasingly fragile. Here's the second great untruth. Always trust your feelings. Always trust your feelings. It is the untruth of emotional reason, reasoning. And, and critical thinking is always demanded that we look at an issue or, 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 or find truth as it relates to an issue outside of our emotions. This dates all the way back to the ancient philosophers, to Plato and Aristotle. The idea was that your feelings or your emotions are actually um, opponents of what is actually true, but our society has taken this the other way. We are trusting our feelings. I, I cannot count for you how many times in 2020 I have heard the phrase said, it doesn't matter if it's true or not, it's how I feel. And, and the problem with trusting our feelings is our feelings tend to be erratic. They tend to swing to, to the um, outer edges of the spectrum and they lead us to false conclusions. Let me give you some examples. One of the things that if we're living a life that is led by our feelings is we, we tend to catastrophize, or I don't know if I just made up a word, if that's a real word, but what I mean is this, that we begin to focus on the worst possible outcome. As I'm watching the uh, political conflict heat up as we head towards November, it's interesting. Our politics, our politics, both sides of the aisle are promoting outrage. And it doesn't matter whether or not the information that they're using to promote the outrage against the other side is true. It, I'll give you a couple examples. If, if Biden gets elected, um, our country will be owned by the Chinese. If Trump remains in office, he will end democracy as we know it. These are the things that you can hear on the nightly news that are focusing on the worst possible scenario. It's what our emotions will do to us. It's an appeal 
that the politicians are making to our emotions. Another problem when we follow our emotions, we begin to mind read. We begin to believe that we understand not just what's being said, but what the motives are or the thinking was behind what was being said. We we begin to mind read. We overgeneralize. We focus on the negatives rather than the positives. All of a sudden, we look back over this year and we're like, man, 2020 has been a complete disaster. Overgeneralization. And we blame others as the source of our problem rather than taking responsibility. Today, it is generally unacceptable to question the reasonableness of somebody's feelings. That, that thin argument that I'm offended or this is how you made me feel is a trump card that, that removes logic from the disagreement or the conversation. Let me give you just one example of how this has changed over the past 40 years. And, and I'll use um, post-traumatic stress disorder as kind of an example. That, that term, post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD, was first kind of documented um, back in 1980 in what is called DSM Volume 3, and DSM stands for the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. This is something that counselors, psychiatrists, and psychologists refer to. It's kind of a library of um, emotional or mental disorders. And, and back in 1980, PTSD, as it was first defined, it was defined as a traumatic event, and hear me, that would evoke significant symptoms of distress in almost anyone and it was outside the range of usual human experience. It would include things like war or, or rape or, or torture would be included in things that could trigger PTSD. But that DSM-3, as it defined pre, uh, PTSD or trauma, was very clear to point out that it didn't involve everyday circumstances. If you went through a divorce, if you lost a job, if you lost a parent, those weren't traumatic triggers because they were things that happened in the normal course of life. So the idea of PTSD when it was first introduced, it had a criteria that somebody outside the trauma would look at what happened to the person and it had that reasonable man kind of context. Would a reasonable man consider this traumatic? Fast forward to where we are today and the most current volume of the DSM manual. No longer is there an outside objective criteria. Today, the standard is subjective. It is described and defined by the, peers, by the person who is experiencing the trauma. It is not for anyone else to decide what is traumatic. If it felt traumatic to you, trust your feelings. The person who feels the offense is now judge and jury over whether the words or the effects were offensive or not. And that's extremely dangerous. Because now PTSD is not just things outside the realm of normal human experience, but the truth is, if the child feels trauma because his Cheerios got soggy, that can't be challenged. That was traumatic. And I've used an extreme to make my point, but you need to understand this is what our culture has embraced. It doesn't matter if it's true or not. If somebody feels it, then it must be true. The untruth of always trusting your feelings has spread like a virus through the American church. People believe that those little hunches in their guts are God's way of nudging them or the Holy Spirit's way of helping them understand God's will, and it's dangerous. Unless that hunch or that feeling that you feel is verified by the word of God or godly counsel, 
unless it can be validated by those two sources, watch out. Trust your feelings. It's not always great advice because our feelings are trustworthy. But, well, David, does the Bible say anything about that? Yeah, it does. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Too often I hear a believer giving this counsel to another believer. Well, as long as it makes you happy, then I'm glad. Um, terrible Christian advice. Our, tr- our feelings are not trustworthy. And here's the third great untruth, the untruth of us versus them. This idea that life is a battle between good people and evil people. The idea that someone is either unimpeachably good or irredeemably bad. Extremes, polarization, it's either one or the other. Think politics for a minute. Think about our current political climate. Political research has shown that negative feelings between the political parties is at an all-time high and has been increasingly and alarmingly growing since the early 2000s. And it's interesting. It's even subtle. Like, um, I don't follow politics as closely as my wife does. She knows more of the politicians and more of the personalities. So I'll watch, walk by a TV. Kristen will be watching something and I'll be like, hey, who's that? And she'll give me the name. And I'll be like, is that person conservative or are they liberal? And if she says conservative or if she says liberal, that description, that polarization creates a filter in how I listen to what that person is saying. If I turn on Fox News, I listen to that broadcast with a certain filter. And then if I turn over to CNN, I listen to that broadcast with a very different filter because there is a polarization in our news sources. And sadly, this isn't just limited to politics. It affects the way we view people through the lens of those who are like us and those who are not. I am no longer defined by my own resume, my own reputation, or the things that I have done or said in the past. But I am defined by the intersection of the demographic circles that I run with. Let me explain. We are hurting in our culture today people into groups. You are in the group of the oppressor or the oppressed. You are either white or non-white. You are young or old. You are conservative or liberal. You are rich or poor, these, these groupings, these ways of stereotyping people go on and on. And we are valuing people and their opinions and their perspectives based off the groups that they belong to. Current critical thought places people into oppressed and oppressor groups. And I would just argue that when you begin to see the world through that lens, it is very, very hard to bring somebody back from that distorted perspective. Sadly, social media fuels this problem because we can each go online. We can retreat into our different news sources and different circles of friends online. Our self-confirming bubbles where our worst fears about the other side can be confirmed and amplified. We are no longer just looking at the world with good and bad ideas. There are good people versus bad people, us versus them. This isn't a new problem. It's interesting, all the way back in Ecclesiastes, Solomon writes this. He says, again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. 
On the side of their oppressors, there was power and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead were more fortunate than the living who are still alive. One of the great blights on human history is the way certain groups of people oppress other groups. This is the social injustice that is followers of Jesus Christ that we would stand against. But we have to be careful that in the process of that, we don't create for ourselves a lens of us versus them. So where we find ourselves as a culture is, is here. We are, we are fragile. We are easily offended. We, we live by our feelings and emotions and trust them to guide our decisions. And people are finding themselves more and more polarized and stereotyped into groups and factions. So, so, so if these are the untruths. If this is the spirit of the age, what does God's word say? What, what is the contrast that the gospel brings to this type of worldview, because I'm telling you as followers of Jesus, we cannot be conformed to these things. We have to do better. So those are the three great untruths. Let me give you three biblical truths, things we need to accept from scripture that we need to see that are in contrast to what our world is embracing. Here's the first one. Don't be surprised when life is difficult. As a follower of Jesus Christ, don't be surprised when life is difficult. In, in, in Acts 14, Paul is working his way through Asia Minor, going to city to city, planting churches and spreading the gospel. And and in Acts 14, he finds himself in the city of Lystra. And it says there in verse 19 that while he was in Lystra, it says Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, nearby cities, and, and they persuaded the crowds in Lystra. And when they persuaded those crowds against Paul, it says they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. Verse 20, but when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And, and listen to what he said when he was revived from his stoning, uh, instructing the disciples. It says in verse 22 that Paul went about, verse 22, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, here's what I want you to hear, that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Jesus himself said in Luke 23, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. Here's here's a big word. Take up his cross daily and follow me. Nowhere in the Bible is the Christian given a hall pass on suffering. The effects of sin and brokenness in this world affect and touch all of us. In John 15 Verse 18, Jesus says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And I know some would ask, why would a God who who loves us, who, who treats us as his children, who has set his unconditional love on us, why in the world would a God like that allow us to endure hardship, allow us to suffer and experience pain? Well, let me give you four reasons. These are free. They're not in your notes, but write them down. Here's the first one. God is growing our dependence on him. James 1, 2 through 4 says, consider it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. That word steadfastness in other translations is endurance. The one who endures to the end will be saved. And let endurance or steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. 
God is growing our dependence on him through trials. He is proving himself faithful. Romans 8.39 says that there is nothing that will be able to separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. In our church, I know men and women who have gone through really difficult seasons. They've, they've battled cancer. They've lost a spouse. They've buried a child. Horrifically painful things. And as they've endured this incredible hardship, they would give testimony and voice to the fact that in their most difficult seasons, when it was darkest and the seas were at their worst, they found God to be faithful to his promises. Another reason that we go through suffering in difficult seasons is it helps us better understand our Savior. 1 Peter 2.21 says that when you do good and suffer for it and you endure, it's a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. So hardship grows our dependence on God. It is a way that God proves himself faithful, that we better understand our Savior. And when we go through hardships, God is using our witness to draw others to himself. 1 Peter 3.15 says, Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason that the hope is within you. When we go through hardships and our foundation of our faith is not shaken and our joy isn't diminished, the people around us go, there's something weird about that guy. There's something different about that guy. What is his joy rooted in that is different than mine? And it gives us an opportunity to share our faith. If you are a Christian, in contrast to what the world has embraced, we can't be surprised when life is difficult. Here's another thing. Willful obedience must guide our feelings. Willful obedience must guide our feelings. If you have a Bible or or an app, uh, just just turn it to Genesis 4 for a minute. In in Genesis 4, we... um, find ourselves in the first, what I would call, counseling session recorded in the Bible. Adam and Eve have sinned in Genesis 3. They've been removed from the garden. In the first couple verses of Genesis 4, we find out that they've had two sons, Cain and Abel. And and Cain and Abel bring an offering before the Lord, and God accepts Abel's offering, but he rejects Cain's. And in response to that rejection, look at what it says. It says this in verse 5. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard, speaking of God. And then it says, so Cain was very angry and his face fell. So when Cain's offering was rejected, he became two things. He became angry. Text says it clearly. And it says, and his face fell or his countenance fell. He became angry and he became depressed. Those were his feelings. Those were his emotions. And in verse six, the Lord comes to Cain and says this, Why are you angry and why is your face fallen? And verse seven's key. If you do well, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. And what God tells Cain in that critical moment is he says, I understand how you feel. But if you do the right thing, if you make a choice of the will to do what is right in spite of the way that you feel, your feelings will follow the decision of your will. What will be disastrous for you is if you follow your feelings because Satan will take advantage of that opportunity. 
We have got to be people that live lives that are based off the truth of God's word. We've used the faith definition around this church since we started the church 10 years ago. Um, faith is believing the word of God and acting upon it no matter how I feel because God promises a good result. Why? While the world is embracing this idea of always trusting your feelings, the Christian is living a life in complete contrast to that. We are fighting against our feelings, making choices of the will because we are people that have chosen to serve a holy God. So the three biblical truths are don't be surprised when life is difficult. Willful obedience must always guide or lead our feelings. And here's the final one. We all need Jesus. This polarization that is happening politically and in other parts of our society and culture, it stands in direct conflict to the gospel. The truth of the gospel is simply this. There aren't good people and bad people. There are only broken people and sinful people who are in a desperate place and in desperate need of a savior. We're not all that different. All of us have sinned. We all fall short of the glory of God and all of us desperately need the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the core to the gospel. And when we begin to focus on the gospel, we begin to see people not as different from us, but in desperate need just like us. And that should move in our hearts to get rid of the barriers and the differences that we so easily focus on. Galatians 3.28 says it this way, that, that in the gospel, there is no Jew nor Greek, there's no slave nor free, there is no male nor female, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. We all stand before the Father the same in desperate need of the saving work of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.18 pushes this idea even further. It says this, all of this is through God and through Christ, God has reconciled us to himself, and he's given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. So, so the gospel stands in stark contrast to this polarization of people by the different demographics that they belong to. The gospel of Jesus Christ says we have the good news of communicating to the world, first and foremost, that all of us has been reconciled to a holy God through the work of Jesus Christ. But our ministry goes beyond that. We have the ministry of reconciliation that's shown in the command to love one another, to carry the gospel to all nations to not be discriminatory in the way that we view people, but to view all of us as equals in desperate need of a savior. So three biblical truths. Don't be surprised when life is difficult. Willful obedience must guide our feelings and we all need Jesus. Church, we've got to focus on these things to combat the spirit of the age that is having such a negative impact in our culture. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for uh, the clarity of your word. And um, I would just lift up um, our country. And as we head into um, the next few months in anticipation of a election that could be very dividing, it would be my prayer 
that um, has a church. We would found the we would find that the uh, foundations for our hope and for our peace and for our joy lie well beyond any political process because we have put our faith and trust in you. Father, I pray that you would open our eyes to the um, delusions that our world is following after, the, the lies that they have believed. Father, keep us true to your word. And Father, even this morning, I'm amazed that you would provide us with a book written 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 years ago that is so relevant to the issues that we face today. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your son. We thank you for your grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.